0: reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 5 verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Right, if you would have a seat this morning, let us pray over the word that God might do magnificently more than we could even imagine uh, through his powerful word. God and Father, you love to speak to us, and you have given it to us in written form that we might be sure of it, and so we explore it this morning with uh, utter certainty that you have uh, planned to transform us by it this morning. So, uh, Father, we ask that that faith uh, that you have given us in your word might be uh, expanded, expounded upon this morning in the power of your spirit, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you if you know the definition of something this morning. It's a a big word, but you might have heard it before. It's the word epistemology. Uh, Do you know what the word epistemology means? If you don't, it's a good one to take, put in your pocket, uh, because it has a lot of different applications. Uh, epistemology is the the knowing of knowing, essentially. It's the study of what we know, how we know it, how you go about the methods and validity and scope of actually knowing something. And it seems very easy on the surface to be like, well, I know it because uh, science told me. Uh, it's easy to think, well, I know it because I experienced it or because I feel it. I know it because I read it in a book somewhere. It was online. It's got to be true. So there are these different ways that we approach knowing things, but even the things that we, uh, you know, think that we know, uh, when you really drill down, it becomes very difficult to know how you know it. So, uh, uh, this has a very direct connection in with the Scripture this morning, but it has an even deeper connection with our daily experience. You wouldn't imagine that a word like epistemology would be something that once you see it, you see it everywhere. How do you know what you know? That's the essential question. Descartes, uh, a philosopher, was really trying to uh, uh, know that he knew things, and he went down this uh, not just rabbit trail, I mean, it was just a, a deep deep-thinking hole for him to go, how do I know things? And what Descartes, you may, you may not know the name, but you uh, you certainly know uh, his saying, "Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I know. What he was doing was uh, was desperately searching for something that was like bedrock, something that was foundational, something that he could not question, some irreversible truth, something that he could stand on at the end of the day. And he did so by doubting everything, by just doubting. He would doubt, and then he would doubt his doubt, and then he would doubt his doubting, doubting, doubt. He went all the way down, and what he ultimately came to was that his doubt was a thought, that him doubting something was evidence of his uh, consciousness, of his thinking. And so uh, what he essentially said is, is because I doubt, I know that I'm thinking, and because I think, therefore I am. And this is something that I would tell you is a very interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting thing to think that you know. It's a really poor worldview to just go all the way down to this bedrock thing and go, you know, the only thing that I can really truly be certain of is that I'm conscious and therefore I exist. Try applying that to Monday morning. Try taking that as application to uh, you going and uh, expending yourself at a vocation tomorrow. There's not a whole lot of gravitas there. There's not a whole lot of bedrock there. What we understand is is that doubt leads more and more to thinking, uh, therefore, we are that's not really knowing something, not, not at least in the sense that John says it, not in the sense that John means for it this morning. So I want to ask you this morning, how do you know something? How is it that you can go about really knowing something? For many of us, uh, especially for those who are in medical school and pursuing, you know, kind of medicine, we have a lot of you here in this room, uh, it's the scientific method. Of course you can know something because we have a method by which we prove these things out. And I think that that's very good. It took uh, ages and eons and centuries for humans to develop a method by which we can uh, know and test things. There's a lot of validity there. For others of us, we might go, I know things through experience. My experience has led me to know cause and effect, and I have this wisdom. For others, it's philosophy. It's diving deep with uh, learned men who have spent their entire lives writing books that they, would, that they would die for, some of them, that you could know something through philosophy. Or maybe for others, it's meditation. It's taking time for stillness. For then others, it's art. For many of us, uh, it's just con- uh, consensus. We, we go and we experience experience the things that our friends think and we think the things that our friends think. It's not magical. We just came to and arrived at knowledge together. For others, it's logic. For others of us, it's a teacher. It's somebody that we can point to. It's somebody that taught us something that sounds right, seems right to us, and that's how we know. I'm very interested, obviously, maybe not all of us are, in this, uh, this knowing of knowing things. I'm very interested also specifically in the way that knowledge and faith mingle themselves and have a relationship and, 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 and depend on one another. And the reason why is because I believe that at the end of the day, you have to have faith in order to know something. You have to have faith faith in the scientific method and your your ability to even perceive what the scientific method is trying to uh, teach you. You have to have faith that you're not just in some simulation, that what you're actually experiencing is real and that it's not just your brain tied in with some big computer somewhere. You have to have faith that anything at all is real and that knowledge is something that you can own. Consciousness, perception, all of these things have something to do with knowledge and with faith. And John, here in this passage, you can go in circle every time that he uses the word know. He repeats this phrase We know, we know, we know, we can know, we can know. Seven times in this short passage, he is talking about knowledge. But he's talking about a very specific form of knowledge. So we're not going to tackle all of epistemology this morning. That would take a rather long time. We're just going to focus. On what John focuses on this morning, and that's gospel knowledge. How can you know that the gospel is truly true? How can you know that it is really real? And this is where we end up today. This is the bedrock truth that we want to stand on this morning, and that is that when you know Him who is true, then we can have assurance of eternal life. When you know, Him who is truly true, you can have and know eternal life. That's kind of where we're going this morning. But there are these kind of things that we need to explore. We need to know, first, Him who is true. We need to also know where we are from. We need to know God's protection. We need to know that God hears and answers prayers. And we need to know that God is eternal life. So those are the things that we're going to spend time exploring this morning. And John really ends this, uh, this whole book, this whole letter of 1 John in the same place that he started. He's going to uh, essentially end where he begins. He's going to tell us that you have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you have all knowledge. So this isn't something new. This isn't something new to the end of his book. He's been talking about knowledge all along. He says, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit that you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So he's writing to you so that you might know and because. Because you know the truth. All along, he's using this word, know. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. So he's going to end with the same message that they received in the beginning. He's writing to them that they uh, might believe and stand fast on and know what they heard in the beginning and that they might abide in it. And so some of you might be thinking, great, Okay, I'll just podcast the previous sermons. If he's just going to repeat himself over and over and the preacher is going to stand here repeating himself over and over, what's the point? So we get to hear the same sermon. And I want to let you know that I think that that's precisely the point. I think that one of the reasons why John is repeating himself throughout the book is because we do know something, but we need to be reminded of it. We need to remember it. We need to treasure it. We need to trust it in its repetition. To know and to believe and preserve the gospel is to recite it to ourselves over and over again, and John does that for us here. But why would we here today decide to do that? Why would we decide to read a book that has repetition of this knowledge, this knowledge, this knowledge? Why would we go back and revisit it? Why would we talk about it week in and week out? What we need to know is that we face many of the same things that all of these early believers did. We have just as many more, though maybe even more access to the false teachings, the things that would go against knowledge, that would certainly go against gospel knowledge. Today, we may not have false teachers running in here and teaching us that Jesus is not the Son of God, but you may go to your counselor, and that counselor may be doing everything that they can to fracture and to break and to pull apart the faith that you might have. They might use fancy words like deconstruction in order to do this, but today, here today, we actually have false teachers in our midst We might even have books that have made their way into our household that at their very basis are going to cause doubt, they're going to cast shade, they're going to ask questions of the gospel. Not just the gospel, but ask questions of who is Jesus and what really is his desire for your life. Many of us go to vocations where we have an HR department that might be wanting you to participate in and teach you things that go strictly against and contrary to to the gospel. And so it's not just as though we look back at this uh, book that John uh, wrote, this letter that John wrote to Christians in the early days, and we go, well, I just don't, I don't really see how it applies, or just tell me once. I don't need to hear it again. Of course, we do We need to recite it over and over again. John starts and ends his letter, and he wants you to know what is true. He wants you to let it abide in you. He wants you to remember the truth and to live in the truth. But, but here's where it's very interesting, because at the very beginning I asked you if you knew the definition of the word epistemology, and that is, how do you know what you know? But what John is actually doing is he's redirecting us just a little bit, not to ask us what we know, but who we know, and that's the first point this morning. We need to know who, uh, who, him who is true. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start at the very end of these verses and kind of zip our way back up to the very top of the verses in order to discover what John wants for us. And so we start with knowing him who is true. Verse 20, read it with me. We know, each one of these by the way is going to start with those words, we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding. So there's two things that the Son of God, Jesus, has done. He has come, He is incarnate, He is Emmanuel, He is God with us, and He has given us understanding. Jesus, in his coming, is actually going to provide you a way to understand life. Anybody in here want to understand life this morning? Anybody want to have a worldview, a lens by which we can actually see the world and see truth in the world? Anybody want that? Anybody want understanding? What we need to know is the Son of God come and giving of understanding. So with 1 Corinthians, I want to ask the question, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? as the debater of the age, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? What well, we need to know what is not foolish to us is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming to destroy heresies. So in this day and age, they had false teachers that were coming in and speaking heresies against Jesus Christ. Today, we have people coming into our lives. We have uh, little bricks in our pocket that are actually trying to provide a worldview for you. They're going to try to speak messages to you. And what you need to know is that Jesus has come and you need to plant your feet on it. Bedrock, build your foundation on the rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy heresies. The things that we might believe about who God is, the ways that we might take away or borrow from his character, the way that we might emphasize things that we like about him and take away things that we don't like, what we need to know is that Jesus is communicating some kind of knowledge, some kind of understanding to you, and he's destroying heresies while he does it. But the second thing is is that he's giving you understanding. You've started to hear, probably like me, this word meta more, not just because Facebook decided to change their weird name, but because there is something to this idea that there is a meta-narrative, that there is some kind of story being told that you might, in its understanding, understand your place within it, understand the institutions that arise in it, understand love and the human capacity for it, understand song and beauty understand art, understand what it is all about, that there is actually some kind of meta-narrative, there is some kind of meta-understanding by which Christians can own the one who wrote the story. So we need to know Jesus Christ, we need to have him destroy the heresies, and we need to have him provide a strong foundation and narrative by which we can live our lives. Why? Well, this same verse tells us we know the Son of God has come to give us understanding that we may know Him who is true and in Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. Verse 20 gives us uh, two things that are althinio, that are true. That we may know him who is true and that we may be in him who is true. Who is that? It tells us that it is the son of God. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give understanding so that we can know and actually reside in the incarnate truth. Now, that's something that we don't talk about very often. We think of Jesus as a person, but here we're actually told that He is something even greater than a person, that He is truth, that He is true. Do you want to know the truth? You can know Jesus. Do you want to be in the truth? Well, I've never thought of it that way. I think I'd quite like to be in the truth. Well, if you find yourself in Jesus Christ, you can find yourself in the truth. What we find there is that in the tumult of this world, amidst the waves and rocky oceans of this world, where you're being pulled apart, where families are being torn, where things are being burned down, we can actually be in truth. Do Do you ever get confused about things? I do all the time. I listen to podcasts that uh, talk about all kinds of things that just confuse me. They're too, too big for me, or they uh, stand opposed to whatever it is that I believe, and it just it's hard to know what is really real, but here we're told that we can actually reside in, be in truth. How? By being in Jesus Christ. When you know him, you are in him, and when you are in him, the second point is, is that you know where you are from. Now for all of us, we have uh, a different, we come from different places, uh, we believe maybe uh, and have believed different things, and we're not really totally sure, and we can't quite make sense of our origin stories. This last week, I actually sat down with a person that's just grappling with things and we knew one another uh, over a decade ago and he came and he actually had a little list written out on a a, a napkin from work that he had And, and he was trying to remember something that had happened like 13 years prior and why? Because it was very formative for him and he realized in talking with his wife about it, he was like, I don't think I remember this right. Do you remember it? And I was like, I'm not sure that I remember all of it, but let's let's do that together. Why? Because where we come from really does impact who we are. Where are you from? Well, this says we know where we are from. Verse 19 says this, we know that we are from God. We know that we are from God. This is another we know statement. This is what he's trying to hand you this morning is that you can know where you are from. It it actually puts this against the whole world of lies that lies in the power of the evil one. So we know where we are from and it's from God. The world is a world of lies and it lies in the power of the evil one. What is this talking about? John spoke a lot about being from God. We've actually talked about it a lot. If you're hearing this language again, it's been a major theme through John. And what he means to tell us by telling that we are from God is to tell us that we are a child of God. So here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to revisit several of these, uh, you know, mountaintops that we've had in past sermons where we just talk about being children of God from God, Okay? I'm going to assume by this point that you've heard something about that. If you haven't, go back and read 1 John, because he's always talking about it. What I want to do, though, is take that idea, and I want to apply it this morning. I want for us to reorient ourselves. John just told you that you are from God. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are from God. What does that mean? Well, for many of us, we feel very small in this world. We came maybe from broken homes. We didn't have uh, quite the opportunities that we wished that we had had. Uh, Our our sin has kept us small. It's kept us marginalized. We had all of these big dreams, but we haven't quite been able to break uh, patterns of habits and sin that have actually, we strongly suspect, some of us even know, have actually restrained us from living life, and it all goes back to where we are from. We feel limited by our small town start. We feel limited even by our name. Some of us have parents that have horrible reputations. And we lived in the midst of a town where people knew our story. And so when I ask the question, where are you from, it, it like brings back like sadness and pain. But when we reorient our story, our origin stories in the gospel here, we get good news for those who have been alienated and ostracized and come from broken places. Why? Because you are from God. You have a new story. You don't have an old story of sin that you live in. You don't have your parents' name still sticking on you. You have a mighty father and you are in Jesus Christ and you have a new origin You are from God. What he does is he lifts you up and out of these broken places. But that's not everybody's story, right? We think, well, yeah, I know that people come from maybe small, hard, sinful places, right? What I know is that there are also some of us who grew up in big places with big expectations And we we can't live off of our family name anymore. We've got like these big expectations. Our fathers were doctors. Our mothers were professors. Like there are all of these big things. And we had all these big dreams and there's this pride. And some of us even went out and got those things and we feel pretty good about it. Right? Where are you from? I'll tell you where I'm from. I've got big places, and I'm going to even bigger places. For some of us, there's just this story of pride, pride in generational wealth that will be tested by fire, pride in ourselves and our own accomplishments. And instead of being pulled up and out, what John wants to do is pull you down off of an ivory tower. He wants to reorient your origin story away from here's what my name is to here's my new name in Christ. I am a Christian. Do you get it? Where are you from? What John wants you to know is that your origin story is found in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, are you living it? If you know him who is true, then you are from God. Are you living like it? Do you see yourself in light of this gospel? Do you count yourself more as a Christian or by some other thing? whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's hard or whether it's great, are you putting some other name on top of the name that you have received in Jesus Christ? What I think that John is beckoning us to do is to relent of it, to give it up, to let it go. Why? Because we are from somewhere far greater. If you are from God, then you are a regent If you are from God, then you are a prince. If you are from God, then you are a daughter. If you are from God, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Where are you from? Where are you from, church? You're from Christ. You're a Christian. So we need to know him who is true, and then we need to know where we are from, and then also we need to know God's protection. Verse 18, look at it with me here. It says, we know. We know everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. Did you read it there? Did you hear it earlier when Kate read it? We know, what? That everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. Let me ask you this. Did you know that? Anybody got any questions about that? I got a few questions, right? Anybody who knows God we, we now know that we are not any longer sinning. What is he talking about here? This is where we need to do a little bit of Bible study. We need to know what John means by keeping on. And what I will deliver to you this morning, that the right reading of this is that no one who knows God continues on in unrepentant sin. It, what this verse is not saying is that Christians don't sin. I've actually met people that interpret this verse differently and in that way, and this is not what it's talking about. How can we know that? Let's read verses 16 and 17 really quickly. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. Now, I just want to start right there, okay? So right on the heels or right before he's saying that nobody keeps on sinning, he's saying if you see a brother in sin. those two things don't go together unless he's talking about something different. Let's keep on reading. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. More questions? I got some too. But what we need to take away from this, at least initially, is that John is not saying that Christians don't sin. He's assuming that they do, and then he's telling you to pray for them. We'll get into that here in just a moment. But what we need to read this as is that there is a keep-on, non-contrite kind of sinning, this unrepentant sin that leads to death, and Christians don't do it. There is sin that leads to death. It is unrepentant. It is habitual. It is rejoicing in sin. It lacks contrition. It is a seared conscience. It's somebody who is actually doing sin and who does not care that they are offending their father. No one can sit there and say, I am in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to continue to do whatever it is that I want. Is that a hard word? It is a hard word. Why? Because our experience is habits of sin. But I want to ask you a question. Do you feel contrite about it? Even in the midst of sin, patterns of sin, sins that go on for decades. Is there sorrow over it? Is there confession of it? Is there uh, letting your friends in Christ into it so that they might pray for you? That's not unrepentant sin. It's not a, a pattern of habit in sin that is leading to death. It is actually quite the opposite. It is letting slowly by one degree of glory over to the other patterns of sin, and it's letting Jesus take those things on. We, we actually know something here of this. We know the struggle that is in it. But verse 17 says this. It says, All wrongdoing is sin. Okay, so he's not getting away from the doctrine of what sin is. If you're doing something that heads in a different direction than God, that is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Is he making an excuse for sin? By no means, Paul would say, right? There's, there's no excuse for sin. But what he's telling us is, is that we need to repent of it, that there is repentance of it. If I could paraphrase this, what I would deliver to you this morning is that we are know that children of God do not continue in unrepentant sin, and they need prayer. Christians in Jesus Christ do not continue on in unrepentant sin, but we need prayer within the struggles with sin. How how can we kind of come about that? But he who was born of God protects him And the evil one does not touch him. So what is it that we know? We know something of God's protection. Now, let's be honest. That's a little bit confusing because it was just talking about those who are born of God. Now it's talking about he who was born of God. In Greek, it actually is saying the one having been gotten by God. Now, that's not you, okay? Now, when he talks about being born of God, that is you. But when he's talking about the one begotten by God, who is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. What is this verse saying? It's saying that we know the protection of Jesus. We know that Jesus actually scoops us up, holds us, and is protecting us in the midst of a world that wants to destroy us with heresy and in the midst of our own sin. Jesus actually protects us, and the evil one does not touch him. You can have confidence knowing that your big brother, Jesus, protects you. Do you know it? Do you know that Jesus protects you? Do you know that He, at this very moment, is interceding for you in front of the Father? That He is actually giving His protection to you? We know God's protection. We are protected from deadly deeds and we're protected from the wicked ways of others. And and how does He do this? Does He do it near to us or very far away from us? Well, we, we we know God. And we know something of his protection. Now what we need to know is we need to know that God hears and he answers our prayers. Verse 15, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know we have. I'm going to stop right there. We know we have. I mean, this is another one of those questions that's like right there in front of you. Do you really know that you can ask God for anything and that he hears you? This is such an encouraging point. It goes on to say this. This is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You can have confidence towards him. This is a major theme of the book. This is a major theme of the letter. You can have confidence. I know that there are people in this room that hear that word, hear it week in and week out in the midst of John's repetition of this confidence, this assurance, and we just don't feel it oftentimes. But John here at the very end of his letter thinks that it's crucial that you might have confidence towards him. Now, now I want to ask you the question, what does uh, confidence towards him look like? What is the antecedent? It looks like to me that it's the son, that the antecedent is the son. You have confidence towards the son. Why? Because he hears you. When does he hear you? Is it through long prayers with empty phrases? No. It says, ask anything according to his will. Do you ever wonder why it is that some of the prayers that we pray aren't answered, or they're not answered in our timing? Here, John gives us a little peek, not the entire story, but it gives us a little peek into why that might be. What we do is we hear from God. God speaks to us first. He reveals himself to us first. Where primarily? In the word of God. As we read and hear from him, we are shaped by him. Our wills are more in accord with him. They are more aligned towards him. And then in the midst of our prayers, we begin praying the things that we learn from God to pray back to him. And what John is saying is, is that when you pray, if you are in Jesus, he hears you. Man, what confidence there is in that. What beautiful truth there is just in the fact that you have an audience with God Almighty. I mean, we, we pray all the time, but very rarely do we get the gravity of what is actually happening. You can have communion with God, not as someone who is far away, but someone who actually hears. And then you can have confidence that he hears. And then if you are being shaped to be more like him and you are praying the things that are in accordance with his will, he answers those things. These are real promises. You can read here in this passage and you can decide whether or not you want to believe his promises or whether or not you want to lack faith that he hears you and that he actually answers your prayers. But what we need to know, what John beckons us to know this morning is that God hears and he answers. We know that we have requests that we ask of him. So is this a Santa thing? Is this like a we get to ask him for whatever we want? Is it selfish Verse 16 tells us the answer to that. It says, if anyone sees his brother sinning, he shall ask God and God will give him life, right? So, so here's what's very interesting. We read that first verse about asking and God hearing and then us asking and him answering and we go, goody, I've got a lot of requests that I get to make of him. But what John is actually telling us is that the, the first thing that we should be uh, entering into is actually prayer for one another, not for self, Not for a Santa God to give us all of the blessings that we ever desire, but to actually ask God to bless other people. Can you imagine a church where instead of going and always giving your requests before God for your own things, you were always oriented in prayer towards the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then they were doing the same thing for you? If you pray and you're in Jesus, he hears you. If you pray in accordance with his will, praying blessings and care over other people, seeing a a, a desire for them to repent of sin and to come into more Christ-likeness, he'll actually answer those prayers. If you are dissatisfied with the way that your brothers and sisters in Christ look around you, if you're constantly kind of agitated and frustrated with your brothers and sisters who just aren't living out the faith, John says pray. John says pray for them do you pray for them? Lastly and finally, we we get to know this eternal life. What kind of confidence uh, towards him it takes to ask according to his will, but what we really want to know is the way that this relates to the gospel. We know eternal life. Verse 13, I, John, I write these things to you. That's not the first time that we've heard that. We've heard it repeated over and over again. John is very clear and wants you to be very clear about why he's writing this letter. I write these things to you who believe To anybody? Is it an evangelical message? Is it bringing people into the faith? It is not. It is bringing instruction to those who believe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. uh, John uses the last part of his letter to remind them, to remind us, who he's writing to and why. And what I want you to know when you revisit the book of First John, whether it's uh, two weeks from now or 20 years from now, I want you to remember this moment. John is writing this letter to those who believe in the Son of God, and that's you. If you end up in a desperate season and situation, come to this book and know that John, the apostle, by Jesus Christ, who is in Christ, who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who is meaning to impart eternal truths, is speaking to you also. You can come, you can trust this letter. He says, I write to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life, forever life in Jesus Here's, here's something that I want for us to grab onto this morning. We don't often think about eternal life in this way and make direct application. Many of us went off to college, at least for guys especially, and like we, we all had that kind of roommate or the other person that was just always playing video games. And it's just like, they're playing video games and they're doing it so cavalierly, like it's this first-person shooter games, and they're not taking it very serious that there's just death out in front of them. Why? Because there's constant regeneration and, like, respawning. It's happening in this other kind of virtual world. And here's what I want to ask you. What if you lived your life as though at any one moment, at the point of death, you were to regenerate and respawn, but rather than being back in that terrible situation where you're, like, shooting people up, you're, like, entering eternal life with Jesus forever? Here's, Here's the connection that I want to make here. John's been talking all the while about the confidence that we have in Jesus. And we're like, yeah, yay, Jesus. But he's also connecting it in with this eternal life that we have in Jesus. What if you knew? I mean, knew for certain. What if you lived your life as if at any moment you might enter glory forever and ever? What person would you be afraid of? Caesar? What army would you be afraid of? The U.S. military? What, what, what person's opinion of you would, would matter at all, would keep you from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ if you knew that any one moment you would be with Jesus forever, being showered with his love and affection? How would it change the way that you live? Would you be more confident? For those of us who lack confidence, John wants you to know. He wants you to be assured. He wants you to be confident. Why? Because you have life everlasting. And the things that are in this life, they matter. We're living in a kingdom that's inaugurated. We're living underneath the king. We're living in his forever kingdom already, but it is still tainted by sin. It's still marred by pain and suffering. It's still unbeautiful because there are things that have disintegrated. There's been entropy in this world, but when you enter the everlasting, there will not be. Man, what confidence there is here in the gospel a forever life with Jesus gives us great confidence. So how then should we live? What well, we should live in keeping with Christian credence. Our creed is Christ. This, this passage is talking about what we know. It's talking about confidence. How can we know what we know? How can we truly have like a deep and rich and abiding and steadfast epistemology? We can found it on Jesus Christ. We can found it in the gospel. We can found it on the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, John says. We can found it on the Word that is given by the apostolic authority that John has. We can have it in order to fight heresy and to live lovingly. John's goal is for us to live differently differently. So so here's a couple of things that you're going to see at City Church. Some of us are new. If you want to know what City Church is all about, how can we live in keeping with a Christian credence? First is to live in Christian community. The, the, the church is actually a tapestry of togetherness. It is a culture of corporate constraints, and it's good. We don't like the word constraint very often, but what we're actually doing here at City Church is building and weaving a culture that is so thick that our marriages depend on it, that our friendships depend on it, that that, that we can't just live in isolation, that we can't just live as individuals, that if... I'm sinning. I know that people are seeing my sin, and then they're praying for my sin, and that I might be restored in the love of God. I want to build a thick culture here at City Church, and you know what? The constraints aren't scary. They're hopeful. Building a community like that would be so different than this world. If we really truly held one another accountable, who likes accountability here? I'll tell you what. The truth is, I do. Why? Because I've seen people who have uh, slowly snuck out the back door and do not live in Christian community, not one with constraints, one with permission given for sin, with heresies that deteriorate the gospel. I see broken marriages. I see broken friendships outside of the Christian community. There's lots of grenades to lob at churches, lots of them, Listen, I've got a longer list than you do of hardships in the church, I promise you. But man, I want a thick Christian community. I want to raise my kids in a thick Christian community. I want to raise them in a place where there are actually expectations of them. And their are gospel expectations. The next one is you will see liturgy. A life of liturgy, a rhythm of recitation, healthy habits of the gospel for every day. Why is it that John spent so much of his time in this letter repeating himself? It's because you needed to hear it. The the, the Holy Spirit didn't make some mistake making this a repetitive letter. The truth is, is that liturgies are helpful for our heart. Why? So that in the moment of crisis, when you get cut open, what bleeds out of you are the things that you learned day in and day out. John says, love. He says, love. He says, love. He takes the teachings of love from Jesus Christ and he goes, love one another. Why? So that in the moment where you're uh, uh, most frustrated with the sons and daughters of God around you, you get cut open and you're hurt and what flows out of you is love. Why? Because you recited it because you had a liturgy for it. City Church needs to be a place where we have uh, catechisms. It sounds painful. It is a little bit. Catechisms are just these uh, question-answer, question-answer, these truths, these doctrines that we teach one another. Fathers, I encourage you, learn a catechism. We have one here at City Church. It's a catechism for boys and girls. Don't let that dissuade you. If you didn't learn it as a little boy or a girl, I didn't. I'm learning it now. How can you know truth? How can you be prepared to give a defense at any one moment? City Church can be a place of catechizing, of truth teaching, morsels of memorized knowledge to develop sturdiness and stability and steadfastness in the saints. So let me ask you this in closing. Beloved, what do you know? What is it that we know coming out of this? We know him who is true, and when we know him who is true, we have assurance of eternal life. Knowing Jesus means knowing him forever. Let us pray. God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it it, it comes in and speaks sweetly and softly to those parts of our hearts that you have already made tender and fleshly. Father, I pray that the truth of your word would resonate in our hearts this morning, and Lord, that we would be changed by it, that we would be softened by it. Lord, I pray that you would develop a culture here at City Church that is mighty, that is in these things, that is living out these things. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and for the word. We thank you for the Apostle John and for the book of 1 John. We ask you that you would help us to know the one who is true, and that the true life would be eternal in us and that we would know it fully. We ask that you would keep us from temptation, Father, from sin and Satan. We ask that you would restore us to life when we fail to live up to your righteous standards. Father, help us to build a culture of Christ-likeness here at City Church. Help us to develop gospel liturgies, not just on Sundays, but in our conversations with one another. Help us to develop gospel catechisms, knowing true and rich and deep doctrines that we can stand on as bedrock. God and Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We want to live in him as truth, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.